Section 12 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 3. The Ebb. Then all went to wreck. Quote from The Lion in Mourning. Chapter 1. There was a bitter wind sweeping across the Bewley Firth, and Inverness on the farther shore lay shivering under a leaden sky. The Cassock ferryman had to tug at his oars, although he carried but one passenger, a gaunt, broad-shouldered young man fully armed, who sat looking across at the little town with rather harassed blue eyes. Four months. Four months and a week over, for today was the 7th of March, since, full of hope and determination, the prince's army had set out on the road to England. Of what avail those hopes? England had not risen for the Stuarts, had not stirred. And yet, just when it seemed that, if the invaders had put their fortunes to the touch and pushed on, they might have gained a kingdom, they found themselves turning their backs on their goal and trailing home again over the border. Little more than forty days had been spent on the other side, and, save for the rearguard action near Penrith, the sword had not left its sheath there. The invasion had been a failure. Yet, in spite of weariness and heart-burnings, the little army had at least recrossed Esk in safety, except those of it so mistakenly left to garrison Carlisle, and many were not sorry to be back on Scottish soil. But to have retreated once more, after beating Hawley at Falkirk in January, even though the bad weather had hindered pursuit and prevented a more decisive victory, to have left Stirling, after failing to take it, in such haste and disorder that the withdrawal had been more like a rout. What name best befitted that strategy? For, gradually, all the lowlands had been occupied in their rear, and there was a slow tide setting northwards after them, which one day might be slow no longer. The prince, maddened at the decision to withdraw north, which was against his every instinct, had been told that the daily desertions were so great as to leave no choice, that the only course was to master the forts in the north, keep together a force until the spring, and then increase it to fighting strength. But had the desertions been so extensive? It was hard to judge, yet, from his own experience, Ardroy would not have said so. Still, there were other difficulties, other divisions. There was the preponderating influence of the Irish favourites, who always had the prince's ear, because they always fell in with his opinions. There was a growing ill-feeling between him and his able but hot-tempered general-in-chief, so acute, that Ewan had, with his own ears, heard Charles Edward charge Lord George Murray behind his back with treachery. Yet Lochiel had been for withdrawal, and whatever Lochiel did was right in Ewan's eyes. He was wondering today whether the chief were still of the same opinion. He had not seen him for over a fortnight. The ferryman's voice broke in on his passenger's reflections. "'Tis all much changed in Inverness now, sir, and for the better. Evidently, like most of the inhabitants, he was Jacobite at heart. To think that only two weeks are gone, I ferried Lord Loudon and the Lord President and the Chief of MacLeod over in this very boat, and all their troops crossing helter-skelter, too, to get away from the Prince. You'll be yourself, perhaps, from chasing after Lord Loudon yonder, he added tentatively. Yes, answered Ewan, his eyes still fixed on Inverness. I am from Lord Carmarty's force. 
the reason why the Earl of Loudon, commanding the district for the government, had evacuated Inverness without a battle, was really due to the somewhat ludicrous failure of his attempt to seize the person of the prince, when, in mid-February, the latter was the guest of Lady Mackintosh at Moy Hall. Conceiving the idea of surprising him there, the Earl had set out secretly at night with a force of fifteen hundred men for that purpose. But, timely warning having been sent from Inverness, the prince slipped out of Moy Hall, and the whole of Lord Loudon's force was thrown into confusion, and a part of it into headlong flight, by the ruse of Donald Fraser, the Moy blacksmith, and four of Lady Mackintosh's Highland servants, who, by firing off their pieces in the dark, and calling to imaginary regiments to come up, re-enacted the comedy of Highbridge on an even more piquant scale. Not only was the Earl obliged to return ignominiously to Inverness, but the desertions from his Highland companies consequent upon this affair were so great that he thought it better to await Cumberland's advance among the Whig clans of Ross and Cromarty, to which he and his force accordingly retired, and Prince Charles's army had entered Inverness without a blow. The water lapped the sides of the ferryboat impatiently. The sky looked full of snow, and nearly as dark as on the day of Falkirk, while the wind was even colder than Ewan remembered it, as they had plodded over Shapfell in the December retreat from England. In Caesar's time, as he used to read in his boyhood, armies went into winter quarters. But all their marching and fighting had been done in the severest season of the year, in autumn and winter, and who knew what awaited them in the not less cruel rigours of a highland spring? For Cumberland, he knew, had been at Aberdeen since the end of February. Ewan frowned, and his thoughts went back to the somewhat comic warfare from which he had just been recalled. For when Lord Cromarty had been sent with a Jacobite force over the Moray Firth after Lord Loudon, the latter, retreating farther north into Sutherland, established himself at Dornoch on the other side of the deep winding firth of that name, which Cromarty, having no boats, could not cross. But directly Cromarty attempted to go round by the head of the firth, Lord Loudon sent his men across by ferry to Tain, on the Rosshire side, once more, and when Lord Cromarty returned to Ross, Lord Loudon recalled his followers to Dornoch. And thus a vexatious and absurd game of cat as cat can had been going on, and might go on for ever, unless the prince could send another detachment to hold Tain. No, Ewan was not sorry that Lochiel had recalled him. He pulled his bonnet, with the draggled eagle's feathers and the soiled cockade, farther down on his brows, and wrapped his plaid round him, for they were now in the icy middle of the firth. The ferryman babbled on, telling him for the most part things he knew already. How, for instance, when the prince had had the castle here blown up after its surrender, an unfortunate French engineer had been blown up with it. It was useless to ask the man what he really wanted to know, how Miss Alison Grant did over there in Inverness, Alison on whom he had not set eyes since Hector and he had said farewell to her, last All Hallows, in Edinburgh. It was a question whether they three would ever meet again, for Hector had been one of the officers left behind as part of the ill-fated garrison of Carlisle, and since the 30th of December he had been a prisoner in English hands. How Alison was bearing this ill news, Ewan could only guess. It was all the heavier for her, too, because her father was in France, having been dispatched thither on a mission by the prince directly after Falkirk. Ewan knew that Alison and his aunt had come to Inverness in the hopes of seeing him, 
immediately on the news of the town's surrender to the Highland Army on February the 18th, but, as it was before their arrival, that Ewan himself had been sent off with Lord Cromarty's composite force, the meeting had not taken place. Miss Cameron, as the letter had since told him, had thought it best on that to return to Ardroy, but, feeling sure that sooner or later Ewan's duties would bring him to Inverness, she had left Alison there, in the care of Lady Ogilvy, whose husband, with his regiment, was on the other side of the spay. And now, Lochiel had recalled Ewan, but only to accompany him on another enterprise. Of his approaching return, Ewan had told Alison, in a letter which he had dispatched yesterday by Lachlan, but he had not told her how brief his stay would be, nor had he broached the project which was in his own mind, the determination which had been growing there since the retreat northward. But, as he thought of what that was, the harassed look went out of his eyes, and he became deafer than ever to the ferryman's chatter. At the guardhouse by the bridge over the Ness, Ewan stopped to inquire where Lady Ogilvy was to be found, for he was not sure of her lodging, and as he was talking to the officer there, he heard a youthful voice behind him, asking exactly the same question in Gaelic. Ewan turned quickly, for he knew that voice. There in the entry stood a half-shy, half-excited boy of fifteen, who had never been in a town before. Young Angus, Neil McMartin's eldest son. His face lit up, and he darted forward. Letters, Machi Kelein. And out of an old sporran too big for him, he produced two, none the better for their sojourn in that receptacle. With a smile and a kind word, his master took them. One was from Miss Cameron to himself, the other, addressed to Miss Alison Grant at Ardroy, in an unknown and foreign-seeming hand, had been redirected by his aunt to Inverness. He put them both in his pocket, gave the lad money to procure himself food and lodging, and a new pair of brogues to go home in, told him where to find his father, and not to return to Ardroy without seeing him again, and himself set off in haste for Lady Ogilvy's lodging. But Angus Og, footsore and hungry though he was, seeing his young chieftain quite unaccompanied, pattered at a little distance behind him with all the air of a bodyguard, his head full of wild plans for joining his father and uncle in this place of many houses, instead of returning to Slochnanian. If they were in Machi Kelein's tale, why not he? Young Lady Ogilvy lodged in one of the larger houses at the lower end of Kirk Street, and as Ewan passed the many-paned projecting window on the ground floor, he caught sight of a blue ribbon confining dark curls. After that he was not much conscious of being admitted, or of anything, until he found its wearer in his arms. "'Oh, my darling, you were expecting me. Lachlan brought you my letter.' Alison nodded, holding very fast to him, her eyes closed like one surrendered to ecstasy. Much as they had to say to one another, for a time neither said it. It was enough merely to be together again after the months of strain and waiting and endurance and disillusioned hopes. But when they had had their fill of looking at each other, they began to talk. "'I knew that you would come back to Inverness,' said Alison happily. They were both sitting on the window-seat now. And, she added, with all her old gaiety, if Lochiel would permit so forward an act, I would kiss him for having recalled you from Lord Cromarty's force. But he has not recalled me in order to stay in Inverness, darling, at least not for more than a couple of days. He and Kepoch are shortly going with reinforcements to the siege of Fort William, and I go too. All the peace and content was dashed out of Alison's face. Oh, Ewan, and I thought you would be staying here. 
She bit her lip, and the tears came into her eyes. Her hand was in Ewan's, and he sat a moment silent, looking down with some intentness at his ring upon it. But we shall have two days together, Metal, and do you not think that those two days are long enough, that the time has come to change this ring of my mother's for another? The color ran over Alison's face, and her hand made a movement as if to withdraw itself. Oh, my dear, she sat rather breathlessly, not when my father is absent, not till he comes back, and not when, when one does not know what will befall next. But, my heart, said Ewan quietly, that is just why I want to make you my wife. Do you not see that? Why, you should have been mine these six months. I've waited even longer than I had thought to wait, and God knows that was long enough. And as Alison said nothing, but looked down, twisting her ring, he went on, suppressing a little sigh. There are many reasons why we should be wed without further loss of time, and these two days that we have now seem designed for that. Our marriage could easily be arranged in the time. Mr. Hay, the Episcopal minister of Inverness, is, I believe, in the town. Lochiel would take your father's place, and I could carry you back to Ardroy as its mistress when we start for Fort William. Alison, dear love, say yes. He was very gentle as he pleaded, for she seemed oddly reluctant, considering that they had been formally contracted since last July, and should indeed have been married in the autumn. She even mentioned Hector and his perilous situation, rather tentatively, as a reason for delay, but Ewan told her that her brother's prospects were ten times better than those of most who wore the white cockade, for he held a French commission, and could not be treated otherwise than as a prisoner of war. And, finally, Alison said that she would ask Lady Ogilvy's opinion. Ewan tried not to be hurt. Since he had not the mistaken conviction of some young men that he knew all about women, even Alison's feelings were sometimes a mystery to him. He longed to say, I have not a French commission, Alison, and leave her to draw a conclusion which might get the better of her hesitancy, but it would have been cruel. And, as he looked at her in perplexity, he remembered a commission of another kind, and put his hand into his pocket. When I saw you, Alison, everything else went out of my head. But here is a letter I should have given you, ere this, forgive me. It was sent to you at Ardroy, and Aunt Margaret dispatched one of the McMartin lads hither with it, and, meeting me by the bridge just now, he gave it to me for you. It is from France, I think. I do not know the hand, said Alison, studying the superscription, and finally breaking the seal. Ewan looked out of the window, but he did not see any of the passers-by. Suddenly there was an exclamation from the girl beside him on the window seat. He turned. Her face was drained of color. My father. Ewan, Ewan, I must go at once. He's very ill. Dying, they think. Oh, read. Horrified, Ewan read a hasty French letter, already more than two weeks old, which said that Monsieur Grant, on the point of leaving France again, had been taken seriously ill at Havre de Grasse. The writer, apparently a recent French acquaintance of his, appealed to Mademoiselle Grant to sail for France at once, if she wanted to see her father alive. Not that the state of Monsieur Grant at the moment was desperate, but because the doctor held out small hope of ultimate recovery. Alison had sprung to her feet, and clasping and unclasping her hands, was walking up and down the room. 
Ewan, Ewan, what if I am not in time? Oh, my dearest, dearest father, ill and quite alone over there. No Hector anywhere near him now. I must go at once. I heard Lady Ogilvy say that there was a French vessel in port here, due to sail for France in a day or two. I could go in that. Perhaps the captain could be persuaded to sail earlier. In contrast to her restlessness, Ewan was standing quite still by the window. Ewan, she began again, help me. Will you make inquiries of the captain of the ship? I think she is for St. Malo, but that would serve. I could post on into Normandy. Will you find out the captain now, this afternoon? Ewan, what ails you? For her lover was gazing at her with an expression which was quite new to her. I am deeply sorry to hear this ill news of Mr. Grant, he said, in a low voice, and seemed to find a difficulty in speaking. More sorry than I have words for. But, Alison, what of me? You would not wish to keep me back, surely? What do you think? asked the young man, rather grimly. But I will not. No, it would not be right. I will let you go, but only as my wife. You'll marry me tomorrow, Alison. There was no pleading about him now. He moved a step or two nearer, having to keep a tight hold on himself neither to frighten her nor to let slip a word against this other claim which, much as he respected it, was coming in once more to sweep her away from him when he had waited so long. Whatever might be read on his face, his actions were perfectly gentle. And Alison came to him, the tears running down her cheeks, and put her two hands in his. Yes, you and I'm ready. Hearts, darling, I wish it too. You must not think I'm unwilling. And you said that you would carry me off by force if I were, she added, laughing a little hysterically, as he folded her once again in his arms. So, next day they were married in the little Episcopal meeting-house of Inverness. Only a very few people were present, but the prince was among them, not the light-hearted adventurer of the escapade in Edinburgh in which the bridegroom had played so belauded a part, but a young man who looked what the last three months had made him, soured and distrustful. Yet he gave them a glimpse of his old charming smile after the ceremony, when he kissed the bride and wished them both happiness. I would I were venerable enough to give you my blessing, my friends, he said, since tis all I have to give, but I think I'm somewhat the junior of your husband, Lady Ardroy, and in any case, how could I bestow my benediction upon a bridegroom who has the bad taste to be so much taller than his future king? But you know that I am at your feet, my prince, said Ewan, smiling, and he kissed once more the hand which he had kissed that night at Holyrood. Last of all, Lochiel, grave and gentle, who had given Alison away, kissed her too, and said, Ewan is a very fortunate man, my dear, but I think you are to be congratulated also. For their brief wedded life, a little house which Mr. Grant had hired the previous summer had been hastily prepared. It was bare almost to penury, a tent for a night or two, meat shelter for those who must part so soon. And Ewan had no gift ready for his bride, save one. When they came home, he put on her middle finger the ring which the prince had given him in Edinburgh. Next day it was theirs to play at housekeeping, and they were a great deal more gay over it than Jeanie Wishart, Alison's woman, who went about her work perpetually murmuring, Pure young things. In the afternoon, since the March sun had come out to look at them, they wandered among the islands and gazed down at Ness, hurrying past, broad and clear and shallow, to the firth. 
that evening they had thought to spend alone by their own fireside. Yet nothing would serve Lady Ogilvy save to give a supper for the new married pair, and Lady Ardroy, in a rose-coloured gown, was toasted by not a few who would never drink a pledge again, and all the Jacobite songs were sung. But not, somehow, that only too appropriate. Oh, this is my departing time, for here no longer mourn I stay with which gatherings were wont to conclude. Yet Ewan and Alison sat by their fire, after all, sat there until the last peat crumbled, and it began to grow cold. But Alison, as once before, was warm in the Cameron tartan, for Ewan had wrapped it round her knees over her pretty gown. He sat at her feet, looking very long and large, the firelight, while it lasted, playing on the shining golden brown of his hair, accentuating to the faint hollow in his cheek the slight suggestion of a line between the brows which the last two months had set there. Ewan, I want to tell you something. Alison hesitated, and a tinge of colour stole over her face. Do you know, Metal, that you talk in your sleep? He looked up at her, surprised. Do I? <laughs> no, dearest, I did not know. <laughs> did I talk much? To disturb you? She shook her head. Ewan seemed to turn over this information for a moment. I believe, he said thoughtfully, that as a boy I used to do it sometimes, so Aunt Margaret said, but I thought that I'd outgrown it. What did I talk of? You, sweetheart, I'll warrant. No, said Alison, smiling down upon him. Not a word of your wife. You seem to think that you were speaking to someone of whom she may well be jealous. And what is more, when I spoke to you, thinking for a moment that you were awake, you answered quite sensibly. "'Jealous!' exclaimed Ewan, turning his clear, candid gaze full upon her. "'My little white love, there's no one in this world of whom you have occasion to be jealous, nor ever has been. Do not pretend to be ignorant of where my heart is kept.' He took her clasped hands, opened them gently, and kissed the palms. "'The space is small,' he said, looking critically at it. "'But, such as the heart is, all of it lies there.' Alison enveloped him in a warm, sweet smile, and slid the hands round his neck. All? No. There's a corner you have kept for someone else, and in it you have set up a little shrine, as the papists do, for your saint, for Lochiel. But I'm not jealous, she added very softly. I understand. Ewan gave her a look, put his own hands over those clasped round his neck, and dropped his head onto her knee in silence. After a while, she put her cheek against the thick, warm waves of his hair. Joy and apprehension had so clasped hands about Alison Cameron this day that it was hard to know which was the stronger. But in the night, she knew. The icy fingers of foreboding seemed gripped about her heart. Not even Ewan's quiet, unhurried breathing beside her, not even the touch of his hand, over which her fingers stole in search of comfort, could reassure her his nearness but made the pain the sharper. Oh, to have him hers, only to lose him so soon. But her father, alone, dying over the seas. She reached out and lit a candle, that she might look once more at the husband she was leaving for her father's sake, for God knew whether she should ever see him asleep beside her again. It was not the seas alone which were about to sunder them. Ewan was sleeping so soundly, too, so quietly, 
and he looked as young and untroubled as the boy she had known five years ago in Paris. There was no sign on his face, in its rather austere repose, of the trouble which had forced its way through his unconscious lips last night. Alison had not told him by the fire that on their bridal night he had uttered protests, bewildered questionings, against that double retreat in which he had shared. "'Must we go back, Lachiel? Must we go back?' She gazed at him a long time, until for tears she could see him no longer, and, blowing out the light, lay and sobbed under her breath. She thought she should die of her unhappiness. She almost wished that she might, yet she sobbed quietly, lest she should wake Ewan to unhappiness also. But quite suddenly, though he had not stirred, she heard his voice in the darkness, and then she was in his arms, and he was comforting her in their own highland tongue, with all its soft endearments and little words of love. And there, at last, she fell asleep. But Ewan stayed awake until the grudging March daylight crept into the little room where he lay wide-eyed, with Alison's dark curls on his heart, and within it a chilly sword that turned and turned. He would never hold her thus again, he was sure of it. The morning was very cold, and when he took Alison to the French brig, a little snow was falling. The gangplank was slippery, too, with rhyme. He carried her bodily over it, and down to the cabin, which she would share with Jean Wishart. There, under the low beams, Alison's courage broke at last. Clinging to him convulsively, she said, in a voice that was not hers, that he must come with her, that she could not go without him, she could not. He must come, too, and then he would be safe. Ewan turned even paler than she. My darling, my heart's darling, you don't mean that. Alison swayed, her eyes closed. Alarmed, he put her on a seat against the bulkhead and, kneeling by her, began to chafe her hands. Soon they clenched in his, and she opened her eyes, dark pools of sorrow, and said firmly through colorless lips, No, no, I did not mean it. I know that you cannot come. Will you, can you forget what I said, Ewan? It is forgotten. It was not you who spoke, he answered, trying to keep his own voice steady as he knelt there, holding her hands very tightly. There was a trampling sound on deck. How long had they for all the thousand, thousand things that remained to say? There was no time to say even one. He bent his head and pressed his lips passionately upon the hands he held. Anguished though it was to lose her, it was better that she should go. For since he had urged her to marry him, that he might take her back to Ardry, he saw with different eyes. The future looked blacker than he had realized. Away in Ross, he had not known of the desperate want of money, even of food, the gradually thinning ranks. He knew of these now, and saw even Cumberland's delay at Aberdeen in a sinister light, as if the Hanoverian commander knew that the fates were working on his side, and that there was no need for haste. Above him, Alison's voice said suddenly, Ewan, Ewan, why do you not say, stay then in Scotland with me? Do not go to France yourself. He was startled. Had she read his thoughts? Why, my darling, he answered as readily as he could, because your father needs you so sorely. Her voice sank still lower. There's another reason, too. Do not deny it. You think that I am safer away? And Ewan did not answer. And you gave me this ring, the prince's ring, not only as a wedding gift, but because you feared that one day, soon, it might be taken from you. 
after a pause, he said. Partly, perhaps. Then I cannot leave you, even for my father, said Alison, and sprang up. I must stay in Scotland, beside you. I am your wife. Take me back to the quay, Ewan. Tell Mrs. Wishart. But Ewan, on his feet too, caught her in his arms. No, darling, no. Think of your father, whom you may never see again. And, love of my heart, he tried to make his voice light, you cannot come besieging Fort William with me. When we have beaten Cumberland, as we beat Cope and Holly, I will come to France and fetch you home to Ardry. When we have beaten Cumberland, Alison looked up into her husband's eyes with a most insistent question in her own. But he did not answer the question, though he knew very well what it was, for he said gently, How can one see into the future, darling? One can only do one's duty. Even as he uttered that rigorous word, there came a knock at the cabin door, and a gruff French voice announced that they would be casting off in another minute or two, and that if Monsieur wished to land, he must be quick. So the sword slid down between them. Ewan's grasp tightened. Alison, white love, rose of my heart, we are one forever now. You will know, I think, what befalls me. Her face was hidden on his breast, so close that he could not even kiss it. Darling, darling, let me go, he whispered. But it was rather a question, he felt, whether he could ever unloose his own clasp and cast his heart from him. And men were running about shouting overhead. The hawser was coming inboard. Suddenly Alison lifted her face, and it was almost transfigured. Yes, I shall know, for I think you will come back to me, God keeping you. She took her arms from his shoulders. He bent to her lips, for the kiss that first turned his heart to water, and then ran through it like wine, loosed his hold of her, and walked straight out of the cabin without another word or look. With the same unchecked movement he crossed the gangplank from the deck, as if he could not trust himself to remain the moment or so longer that it would take the sailors to cast off the second hawser. But on the quay he turned, wishing they would be quick and make it impossible for him to leap on board again, though the plank was now withdrawn, and be carried off with Alison. And at last, after an eternity which was all too short, the end of the rope splashed into the water. More sails went up, the distance began to widen. Alison was going from him. He stood there motionless, long after the brig had left the shore, watching her move to the waters of the Firth. The sparse snowflakes whirled relentlessly against him, but they melted as soon as they came to rest, as brief in their stay as his two days' happiness. From the quay, Ewan went straight to Lochiel's headquarters and reported himself for duty. Two hours later his body was marching out of Inverness in the van of the Cameron reinforcements. Where his soul was, he hardly knew. End of section 12